Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Never ever give up hope is a show about people who have done just that. They never gave up, no matter what happened. Many of my guests have survived incredible circumstances, and as a result, they have a passion to help others who may be going through something similar. And many of them have, have survived extreme poverty or abuse or illness or death in the family, or loss of business, or extreme depression, or disease, and many of them had to fight to survive. Never Ever Give Up Hope gives them the opportunity to not only share their stories, but also to give us tips on how they did survive, and encouragement on not only how to survive, but more importantly, to thrive. We are now heard in over 140 countries. We continue to maintain the number one rank on Google searches on the subject of hope. I don't care where you are in this world. People are looking for hope, and especially if they're going through a dire circumstance themselves. So I thank you for listening today. I thank all my guests, of course, and I thank all my listeners, because without listeners, we wouldn't have a show. Thank you for your feedback, and today we are going to have a show that I know is going to touch many of us in many different ways, because we're doing something a little different today. We're having a husband and wife together. They survived his cancer, and when I say they survived it, I think very often when someone goes through something as traumatic as cancer, the spouse, the partner always experiences their own set of pain and circumstances that they have to deal with, their fears, their struggles. But we don't usually hear about that. And so today, with the two of them on together, we're going to touch on what it was like, their sadness, their sorrows, their victories in this journey. So welcome, please, Glenn and Debbie Kirkpatrick. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to have this conversation. Yes, thank you for having us. Glenn is a three-time 
unbelievable. Three-time, 31-year cancer survivor. And he is living with the late effects. I thought this was interesting when I read this in your bio. With the late effects of radiation and chemotherapy. Just because you're cancer-free doesn't mean that you still don't have struggles physically that you're dealing with. And so they're going to talk about this too and share his insights on how to deal with this on a daily basis. Debbie is an animal health care professional. Oh my goodness, that touches a soft spot in my heart. I'm a dog rescuer. We've rescued over 30 puppies. And Aww. so, yeah, so this really tweaked my interest, of course. And you, you wrote a chapter in Glenn's book. And the name of the book that they're going to talk about today is Overcome. I love that title. A story of intervention, rescue, and redemption, our cancer survivorship journey. Welcome again. Okay, Glenn, let's start with you. Okay. Now, I know that there are many people who have had to deal with cancer diagnosis. Yes. And in 1989, you were told that the Hodgkin's lymphoma had returned. I want you to, if you would please, to walk us through the initial emotions and thoughts you had the first time and also then when it returned. Okay, thank you. In May of 1987, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma for the first time. I'm one that is uh, solution-oriented, and of course was something this overwhelming as a, was looking like it was going to be a cancer diagnosis. And after diagnostic surgery and biopsies, indeed, Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage 3A. Wow. I think a word is stuck. I think a word that I um, would describe how I felt is hurt, pounded. While you know, we made every appointment, Debbie and I. We, you know, we shared with family. We accepted support. Right. Um, I, I also thought quite possibly I would uh, die from the cancer. Didn't like the thoughts, but they were there. And gee, if I died from the cancer. Um, Debbie wouldn't have her husband, and we had one one son at the time who was less than three. That Russell would grow up without his dad. Um, so there was a resolve to follow the doctor's direction, you know, have the treatments while anxiety, fear, and uh, again, sometimes just being stuck, like, what do I feel? Right. Interesting. Go ahead. So the, it was a year in 1987 of... 50 radiation treatments that brought remission. Uh, We were excited. (laughs) We celebrated the remission. Debbie was amazing in coordinating this. Uh, A few uh, rock concerts and a trip to Cancun. Why was that important? Well, as you might imagine, it allowed us to to reset, uh, create, create a new beginning. It's following remission some of those trips i gained enough energy to return to the police department and you know get right back get right back at doing my then beloved career so what happened then when when you were hit with this the second time between the remission of the first time and the second diagnosis in 89 we had moved from la county to san diego it was our fresh start Bought an old horse ranch and four acres, had some space. I would later see that I it wasn't just a retreat. I wanted totally away from 
if I could, any memory of any trial that we just went through. Mm -hmm. And of course, that wasn't possible. But at the time, there was much to look at as a new beginning, the ranch property. I had lateral to transfer to the Escondido Police Department in North San Diego County, doing well. Well, about a year later, I was growing very fatigued. I could cycle, I used to road bike. I would cycle shorter amounts of time and be more tired than ever during that shorter period of time. Mm. What did I think first? That the cancer had returned. Followed up with the doctor, biopsy, and yes, the Hodgkin's lymphoma returned. Um, we were devastated. We were so many feelings. And yes. I'm going to stop you here and just ask you, now, did the doctors warn you that this may return, or did they give you a free bill of health after the first time and say that everything's cool? Well, um, you know what? I actually didn't remember, and I needed a refresher from Debbie on what we were told. And Debbie remembers, she remembers the doctors kind of breaking down the, um, it could return, and there could even be a secondary cancer which I later received. Right, okay. So does that put you in a state of fear at that point? Like do you like even before the second diagnosis, almost like you're waiting for the, you know, the other shoe to drop? Did you live your life that way or were you able to as you said celebrate the fact that you were now clean? Like w- what was going on emotionally there? I'd say both in that we celebrated the new beginning the move, the ranch property. Uh, Without too great a challenge, we started a new job in San Diego County. Debbie's pregnant with our second son at the same time. Sure, any any sign of fatigue, I was concerned that um, the cancer had returned. So when it did, uh, uh, disappointing and fear, while not altogether surprised. And at that point, he really thought he was going to die. He thought that the chemotherapy was just a... A doctor had used the word salvaged, like we could salvage you with chemotherapy. So he thought, well, I'm just going to have chemotherapy and then I'm going to die. So that was his mindset going into the chemotherapy. And that was, as you can imagine, very, very challenging. What does what did he mean by salvaged? We can kind of get in there and rescue you with the chemotherapy if the radiation treatment doesn't work. Okay. But in Glenn's mind, that was a death sentence. Like people get chemotherapy and then they die. But that's not obviously the case. He's here 31 years later. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very grateful for that. No kidding. Okay, well, go ahead, Debbie. Uh, What Anything you want to share with what Glenn has already talked about? Sure. I was a new mom had a two-year-old with the first diagnosis. And then with the second diagnosis, I had a four-year-old and a six-week-old baby. And I was quite overwhelmed, as you can imagine. Started a new job in San Diego. Mom of another son that's only six weeks old and then a four-year-old child. My husband is feeling hopeless and just going through the chemotherapy motions because that's what he was supposed to do. Right. Yeah, I was quite overwhelmed. I felt very alone. We were in a new place. We had no friends here. Um, we did have a couple that moved here just a short time after we did, um, when Glenn was, had just started his chemotherapy, and they were a great help to us. 
we've been friends for over 30 years. And so it was a, they helped out a lot with the children and um, just emotional support. But at that time, I was feeling pretty overwhelmed. Now, when, when you as the spouse, very often they are almost neglected because all the effort, all the energy is put on the person that's going through that. So you would have your own tears in the closet, so to speak. <laughs> and how did you or did you try to keep that from Glenn so he would not see you weak? Yeah, I tried to be strong for him. I felt like I needed to be the strength in our family at that time because he was physically weak and emotionally weak. So I put on a pretty good front, going to work every day, taking care of the children, keeping the house. Um, And then the only support was my two friends that had just moved to the area as well. And they were trying to get established. They had their own children. So... Yeah, I tried to put up a good front. Um, I'm pretty sure he could see through that pretty well. He's a pretty intuitive guy. But um, I tried to keep it all together. But it, I finally got to a breaking point where I was just completely overwhelmed. And I, I, I said, I can't do this anymore. And I, would, I just wanted to run away. But I didn't have any place to run to. And you also are the nurturing type, so you knew you had to be there. So you're, yes. you're, you're, you're torn between this, I don't want to be here anymore, and I can't leave. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so now this is, you're talking the first diagnosis or no, the, the second, right? Mm-hmm. The second diagnosis with two children. The first diagnosis, we just had our oldest son. Okay. And so the second diagnosis, we had two children, a four-year-old and a six-week-old. So it was quite overwhelming. Just having a second child added to the family can be stressful. And then add a second child and move to a new city and have a sick husband and a new job was almost more than I could bear. Now, before you tell us, because I know that this is a pivotal point, what happened the day you came home early from work. So I don't want you to give that away yet. But what I would like you to share is essentially the journey at this point. How many, how long did it last from either one of your perspectives? What was happening? I know that Glenn had some serious bouts with depression. So just touch on what was going on at that point. And possibly, you know, you could, you could um, share a little bit of what where you found strength to get through what you were going through. A good part of the year in 1989, I underwent the chemotherapy. I did not realize depression was coming on. And as it, as it crept on, if you will, I continued to go to treatments and come home and, and rest. Um, I was off work. And over time, I began to have dark thoughts, unruly thoughts, thoughts of suicide, suicidal idealization. I wasn't myself. I mean, I was clearly not myself and had never been depressed before. All I knew is I was having these thoughts. I did think, this time I will die. Um, even wrote that in the book. It's really clear that. And as Debbie mentioned, I now realize, looking back, that falsely, incorrectly, I believe that chemo was it prescribed for people, me at the time, to just extend your life a bit and you die anyway. So incorrectly, I had set up in my mind that that's what was going to happen. I felt like I was dying and then I began to have the 
Thoughts? Debbie's great. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so how long was this process that you were going through the chemo, and did it extend over several months, or? Oh, eight months. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So eight months. Um, thanks for asking that. What followed was visits to um, clinicians, counselors, psychiatrists, prescribed one at a time, but different antidepressants. It turned out the depression was drug-resistant, um, at least three Psychiatrists all agreed and talked to Debbie. I don't really remember this. They suggested electroconvulsive therapy. Which is what? ECT. um, Old school, they called it shock treatment. Okay. Um, In a clinical setting, you are put into where you have minor minor seizures. Um, And when it's effective, it helps a person and can completely relieve the depression. And is it short-lived? The... Deep, dark depression I had with the thoughts I described, completely lifted. Okay. Ama- amazingly, amazingly so, I could feel happiness, joy, could not wait to leave the hospital to be with the family. Uh, we call it an, an awakening, a 180 in how I was doing. And Debbie, were you wondering at this point why you can't fix him? Yeah, I, I thought love could be enough. Like, don't you love me enough to be able to feel again, to be able to connect with me? Because there was just nothing when I talked to him. Oh, like, it that's was, a good point. It, there was nothing. that. I would beg with him, just talk to me, tell me what's going on. And there was just nothing. It was like a blank stare. Now, was this partially because of the chemotherapy? I mean, he, his body is going through a lot. Yes. So I gave him a lot of grace in that area. But knowing he wasn't himself, he wasn't the same guy. Right. And so trying to dig, but not, but trying not to dig too much to make him, you know, run, I guess, is what, what I was afraid of. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very difficult time. And just thinking, yeah, I can't, I can't fix this. This is not something that I can do. Now, with the first bout, we had went to um, a cancer support group, and um, that was helpful. I found that to be helpful and also a little discouraging because, you know, in that support group, you had spouses and and uh, cancer patients that were undergoing some of the same treatments that my husband was, but they were all older, and some of those people passed away within our group, and so that didn't provide a lot of hope or encouragement that's a good point you know that you're going through this basically when you're a lot younger Mm -hmm. that had to um that had to weigh heavily on you i'm sure definitely so is this a good time to ask you about what happened that day you came early from work or is there something else you want to share before you share that day i had left for work in the morning and um knew that glenn was struggling you know not himself He was supposed to be going in uh, to work as well. And then when I was driving down the street, I saw him, his car turned around and coming back towards the house. And I thought, that's really odd. Uh, What's going on here? I I ended up going to work and then I told them I need to leave. I, I just had this gut feeling I need to go home and check on my husband. So I I drove back home. When I pulled up to the house, 
he was in the back of the house and he came, he heard the car, we had a dirt road, so he heard the car come up on the gravel driveway and he came down the driveway as I drove up. Um, obviously, he had heard the car um, come up, but he was actually in a horse stall with his service revolver and he was ready to commit suicide at that point. And that's when, you know, at that moment I found that out and found out how serious his depression was, gathered up guns, had had uh, our friends take the guns out of the house and went and took him to a mental health facility immediately where he voluntarily admitted himself and then um, from there was treated for this major depressive episode. Um, but then also his blood counts had dropped, so he had to be transferred and was hospitalized for several weeks because of his blood counts being low as well from the chemotherapy. So it was kind of a, a mess of the depression along with the chemotherapy. And um, he was medically fragile as well as um, emotionally fragile. And how long was he in the hospital then? He was in the hospital for about three to four weeks. Wow. Yeah, so it was quite quite a run at that point. And in the meantime, you're at home mm -hmm. and you're struggling with all kinds of emotions. Yes. And also you are working, you have a family. So what happened when he came home from the hospital? Was he a different person and did you feel a relief from the anxiety that, that you were had been living in like because of his change of attitude or what happened? No, not at this point because at this point he was still being treated with medication. Okay. The, and his depression had not lifted. So I was still very concerned about him, afraid to go to work, like what was going to happen, Right. continually taking him to see different psychiatrists or the same psychiatrist and then he recommended somebody else and and that thus we got the referral for the ECT. After the ECT, he was a different person. After the ECT, he was like he said, it, it was an awakening and he became my husband again, which was amazing. But that was several months past this initial um, hospitalization. And uh, there was a big turning point, though, when he was in the hospital. Um, I had dinner with his dad and stepmom. They uh, really encouraged me to, at this point, because I just told them, I, you know, I was overwhelmed, I was done. And they said, you know what, Debbie, God just keeps reaching out his hand to you, reaching out his hand to you, but you just keep pushing him away. And that really cut me to the heart. Like I was like, whoa, they're, they're right. What do you think they meant by that? You know, God was pursuing a relationship with me and I was ignoring him. Okay. I, I had grown up going to church but never really had my own relationship with God. And at this point, I just, on the way home from that dinner that night, I, I said one of those prayers that you say in a time of desperate need, you know, God, if you just take this burden from me, I promise I'll follow you for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I definitely felt that burden was lifted. And uh, out of Christian friend at work who 
really helped me with my relationship with God, studied the Bible with me, and but a new beginning for me, yes. I think Jerry might have been saying you're trying to do it on your own. Let people help you. Um, what you're carrying, no one person should carry. Right. And, um, and then whatever her background experience had been, we didn't know her too long. And, and that everything you said was true and accurate and you remember it. I'm just thinking, could it have been also? She thought, oh, my gosh. You need help, support. This is beyond one person. Could that have been? That could have been. Also. But, you know, I think that very often, if we're strong people, we want to stand on our own two feet. Sure. Oh, and, yeah. and we don't want to think that, you know, you, you want to, other people have problems in their lives. Why would we want to burden them with ours? And, and you know, we, we want to keep up the good front. It's just like the wife trying to keep up the good front, as Debbie was doing for you. You know, we don't want people to, to, to appear, that we appear weak. And on the other hand, that, you don't want a handout, you know, like, yes, I need help. Give me help, whatever area that, that comes. So that's a normal human reaction. Oh, yeah, I understand. So that that's not unusual at all, and I think people can really relate to that. Mm-hmm. So now you are in a place where, okay, there's, there's something that I need to do here. I need to um, have a relationship with God. I need to allow other people to help me. Is this where things begin to change? Now, well, depression lifted, beginning to gain my energy back. We were deemed to be in remission, um, kind of a quiet celebration with a few friends at dinner. We had friends, new friends, support. That just, that just meant so much. Uh, personal support, watching our our young sons. Also, I had begun to gain some uh, confidence, maybe even more than I had before, that I had lost when uh, what I call as I just like I kept being kicked in the head. Well, what what wasn't I learning with the cancer diagnosis? But I returned to work, and I felt like Superman. So I was a uniformed policeman. Something I thought was over my career. I'm back working, answering calls. You know, running, healthy enough to run down the street after after someone that needed to be chased. <laughs> and <laughs> Good point, as a policeman. <laughs> so the confidence, camaraderie, a relief that I, my employment continued with benefits. You know, I had a family, and we just, our faith increased, big turnaround. And when did you get a new diagnosis that you were cancer-free. Explain a little bit about what happened there. Yes, and we talked about the second bout, and that was at the end of 1989, right? Or January 1990. I was deemed to be in remission from the Hodgson's lymphoma, the second bout. It was, help me, about a year and nine months later, I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocyte leukemia. Oh, my goodness. um, It's known as CLL. And that's called, I've come to learn, a term as secondary cancer. How did that hit you? That's the best question. Thank you, Carol. I was working. I'm in a police car. I'm toward the end of my shift. My doctor paged me. I pulled the side of the, my oncologist paged me with results. Okay. I pulled at the side of the road on duty, went to, I think, a pay phone. I mean, this is what, 19? Right, right. Early 90s. And he said pretty straight out, oh, you have cancer, uh, it's chronic lymphocyte leukemia. Oh. Okay, we must have set an appointment. And then I thanked him, I believe, 
Well, Deb and I had already worked out when we get the results, here's what's different. I go home after my shift. She comes home after her shift, daytime. And we shared and cried and prayed and also felt at peace like, okay, now we have a, a relationship with God. We have a support system. Okay. We've been through some of this before, but not this type of cancer. So there was a resolve and a confidence. Well, sure, we were insecure about what is our future. I mean, again, and <laughs> right. that's what was different. Our faith, our support, our resolve, and uh, hope that we were carrying with us now. So what, did you have to go through another bout of chemo then, or what did you do? I opted for alternative treatment in Tijuana, Mexico with with a doctor. And in short, why? Well, I had researched and I received help from um, family up near Stanford University, and we could not find anywhere in the U.S. a protocol of treatment for CLL at that time. Really? So uh, we opted for the other, the other treatment. It was uh, something that they call wait and watch. So they just kind of monitor you, and when it gets bad enough, then they then they determine a treatment. But we weren't willing to do that because we had already been through this twice before. Right. And we're like, no, that's not good enough. Let's do something to boost his immune system to hopefully be able to fight this. We first contacted a nutritionalist, and then uh, she recommended uh, this doctor in Tijuana, and that's where we pursued treatment. And then when did you get your clear bill of health? Was it after that or did, was it years later or? It was five years later, uh, remission came. <laughs> wow. So, so you, you were living under this dark cloud for many years. And even living under that dark cloud, you still found peace and joy and happiness and hope and that i'm sure was part and parcel to carrying you through this at what point did you decide to write a book it would be in the early early 2000s where i'd never i'd never uh, written a book or any really excluding in law enforcement that's a different style of, of course writing. of course so um and what i did is i i researched and learned how to write a book proposal so early 2000s i wrote a three chapter book proposal, and I started sending it, uh, emailing it, to, mailing it to literary agents, publishers. So I'm at a big learning curve, and what, what happened is I received much feedback on kind of what to do next, but no one was interested in publishing it. In fact, they said keep writing, and they were right, because I had three chapters. Okay. Um, <laughs> so in short, I reflected on married, children, full-time career. I, I do have some definitely fatigue, which we've sort of gotten into the groove of it. Uh, not a not a big concern. And I just parked it. Uh, fast forward, much life happens. And about 2011, I started to get the idea again. Gee, do I have that proposal on my desktop? Yay, I found it. I'd been writing a blog and Facebook posting. I began to gain the confidence that I could write, looked at those original three chapters. They were just a little starting point for what I would write. And then I kept writing. March of this year, we released Overcome. Oh, it's just this year. Okay. So were your doctors surprised at what happened in the end? A couple of years back, we thought maybe the Hodgkins was back. And so we went and saw a um, Hodgkins specialist at UCSD here in San Diego. 
Um, or, or the chronic lymphocyte leukemia was back because of his fatigue level. And so we had went to see this doctor and he's told us at that appointment that Glenn is one of 2% of the population that has survived his cancer with that treatment protocol back in the eighties. He said, he says he likened it to like a sledgehammer effect where they just, blast you with the radiation and chemo to and it was effective it got rid of the cancer but not looking towards these um yeah late effects less but, refined and less focused back in the day Go yeah on. yeah so what a journey of learning oh yes and your children at some point now that you know as they're they're getting older they had to they had to be part and parcel to this as well Oh, yes. And that's such a message to them, too, of tenacity and perseverance and and hope and faith. It's got to be an incredible lesson, life lesson for them, and I'm sure one that you would not want to maybe revisit, but, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, <probably not. laughs> but the bottom line is it really is beneficial, isn't it, for what they have probably come out, you know, as a result of this. It's one of the most important to me and long lasting I pray that yes. what the boys have seen and continue to see, they verbalize it. So then I, I like to say, I'll get a compliment from our middle son, looks up to me, I'm his hero and all you know, right. that's great. It should be that way. But <laughs> but I, I feel good and I say, Trevor, I'm glad that's in you. And then I, I point it to his character, what he values. Very insightful, Carol, yes. And that that's legacy to me. So after whenever yes, yes, I yes, pass, yes. they can continue to carry that on and with their children. Now, with your book, who would be interested in reading it? What kind of feedback have you had, if any? And is it more of a story format or a how to get through this kind of a book? It is a cancer memoir, Christian inspiration, okay. general book. Sometimes bookstores, it's up to them, they stick it in uh, self-help. Wherever okay, people okay. can see it, you know, look at it, buy it, it has received tremendous feedback. Uh, we like when we get it personally, you know, we'll, we'll talk to people. Of course. Maybe to put a cap on that, one of the most highly regarded reviews, I, I take as highly regarded, is a gentleman, Tom Jones, who has MS. He's lived with MS for decades, has written important books, theological books, but also the real life raw, kind of more, maybe like I write, about faith and hope while living with MS and and still serving others. And he wrote a, I mean, his review is amazing. You know, it came from his heart. So, yes. And it's an indicator then for me, for us, that, okay, here's who it's impacting and how. I see it as a... A story we joke about, it's based on a true story. Well, of course, it's our story, but we joke. <laughs> However, what I'm beginning to come to understand that as the story is told, folks can, I believe, can pick out, that they would pick out different things to help uh, thrive, if you will, or do the best they can during a cancer experience. I would say um, it's a story of hope. It's a story of inspiration. I think it would be helpful for anybody, whether they've had a cancer diagnosis or not. It shows faith, perseverance, courageousness. 
So I think it's a story that needs to be told. It's a, uh, we, we joke, it's a, it's an easy read. It's a little book with a big story. I like that. A little book with a big story. So people can read it quickly and be inspired and pass it on. Exactly. Because there's so many people that are suffering in, in this respect. I mean, it's, everybody knows somebody. So mm-hmm. that definitely is a message that True. needs to get out there. True. Is there anything either one of you want to say in closing. I think when life hits you with unexpected um, crushing news and you feel like you have nowhere to go, look up. I mean, God is always there for us. Uh, He has been my strength, my shelter, and my peace through all of this. Um, Well, at least through the last part of it. Right. Because... (laughs) With the first diagnosis, I didn't know him. But with the second diagnosis, uh, I really felt like he drew me in. And I am I will be forever grateful for that. Okay. So I feel like it's my responsibility to share something a bit different. So I did give up. I think of the title of your show, which I love. I did give up. I wasn't myself. And I had thoughts of suicide. I ended up with a loaded pistol, I even shot one round to just see if any neighbors were here and would come. Uh, I'll never know what would happen after that. I get rescued. It's awesome. It's it's great. Yes. It's, life, it's life-giving. I'm just saying that we know up to the point that Debbie came home. So I feel I have responsibility for anyone whoever's decided or isn't fully aware that they've given up to don't give up. Do whatever, do whatever it takes. You text the friend. You get out of the house, and if you're able to, you're you know you walk to the coffee shop. You talk to the neighbor. You get on the phone. Um, not that these things can always be easy. You yes. You reach out. Basically, you you reach. You just reach out and see what will come. Now that's while recognizing that the mental anguish and pain is real. It can be real when you have it. It's real. And yet, don't ever give up. Um, because I like the that. other, because the you know the other side of the moment where I gave up. Look at all the life married to Debbie Joy. We have two grandchildren now. Ah, beautiful grandchildren that live three doors down. <laughs> um, four-year-old boy and a one-and-a-half-year-old girl. We've touched people with our book. Um, you know, a lot of life has happened. Yes, since. yes. One could argue more life to the full than all the years that led up to, which is so important, our years together, up to before the first stall. So I know what it's like to give up. I'll never give up again, even while living with the late effects and, uh, and depression still. That, however, it does not... Well, that that brought tears to my eyes, Glenn. I really appreciate that. And that's the bottom line of the message that you don't know what's around the corner. And if you give up before you get around that corner, you you are basically losing hope. But there's always the, even if sometimes there's just that thread of hope that you can hang on to wherever you need to find that. And you definitely found it in each other. 
and God and just, you know, support from friends and grab onto those moments, hold on to them, realize that a better day is coming. It's not just a cliche. It is reality. Right. And, and so I thank you for sharing. This was such a heartfelt uh, show today and I really appreciate how you shared your story. It was done so un- unselfishly and and also sharing the dark side because many times it takes courage to share the dark side and you did it with grace. So I thank you and we look forward to sharing your book. I know that there are going to be many people that will be touched by it. And because it's a little book with a big story, it probably would make an awesome Christmas gift. A stocking stuffer even, right? Good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So we will definitely get that message out there. And I thank you so much for being part of Never, Ever, 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 Ever Give Up Hope. Thanks for everything. And this was just so rewarding to have this conversation with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.